0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Julie Douglas. And
1: we are coming at you around Thanksgiving, if you're listening to this as it publishes. Uh, but we're talking about comfort, and this is certainly a season of comfort. Uh, but comfort food, the feeling of comfort, is something that we we crave, that we seek out uh, at various times throughout the year. So, uh, So don't run away. If you were listening to this in July,
0: that's right, because you never know in July, you might need a bit of comfort, uh, cold comfort at that point from your air conditioner. But, um, yeah, I mean, what I think about comfort, I think about quilts. I think about hot cocoa. And I think that some people are drawn more to comfort than other people.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I I'm probably
0: about, you know, halfway there. It doesn't, you know, sure. I'll take some comfort, but I don't need it.
1: I, I mean, I really like comfort. I mean, I'm pro comfort. Because uh, for me, I probably think, you know, in like a nice warm blanket, that's good. Cat on your lap, that's good. Hot beverage of some kind. I guess it, comfort, I do tend to think uh, of it, especially uh, something I seek out during colder months. Um, yeah. Which, which also brings to mind like like chicken soup, something that I I don't actually, nobody really likes chicken soup. I mean, my wife makes delicious chicken soup, but for the most part, you're coming at chicken soup uh, out of a, a sense of more than just wanting the taste, but you want all the emotions that come with it and all the all, all the ideas about chicken soup that exist uh, culturally. You know.
0: So already we've talked about several di- different aspects of comfort because really you've got the tactile part of it, yeah. and then you've got the food part of it, and then the psychology that sort of gels all of it together.
1: Yeah, because what does it ultimately break down to? Um, ask a neuroscientist, and they'll say it all comes down to it being the opposite of stress which is pretty broad, but yeah. Think of it. Think of a time you've been stressed. Think of a time when you've been comfortable. They're pretty much uh, polar opposites. Nobody's sitting around biting their nails and guzzling chicken soup uh, with a blanket wrapped around them while they watch uh, Gilmore Girls uh, marathon on TV or something, right? I mean, it's it's all about. It's very specific. Yeah, and artwork. that's another aspect. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I I know somebody who has who is who that I remember that was their comfort thing, and certainly that's another aspect of comfort is uh, is media. You know, it's like mm-hmm. there'll be certain certain albums you might put on. There, it's like, yeah, I'm going to put on some. Boards of Canada, and that's for me a very that's a very comfort minded soundtrack to plug into. Or for some people, it is a Gilmore's Girl marathon. <laughs> you know, something that they that that really serves as kind of a, a replacement social uh, engagement. Scenario. Well,
0: for me, Little House on the Prairie.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, Michael Landon.
0: All the schmaltz, all oh. the Michael Landon that you could ever want. Because when the world seems cruel and unfair, Michael Landon is there for you. So what we're talking about are three principles of comfort security, reward, and connectedness. Okay. So just feeling connected to your fellow man, which might have something to do with Michael Landon, right? Um, And each of these uh, principles of comfort activate different parts of our brains. So it would make sense that you have uh, this sort of uh, big idea of comfort having to do with the tactile, having to do with food, having to do with music, media, um, all being rolled up into this one big thing that comes at the end of November, you know, into our living rooms and Thanksgiving. And that's really why we wanted to cover this topic, uh, because you think about Thanksgiving and ultimately you think about not just family conflict and uncomfortable <laughs> silence around the table, but comfort foods yes. to help ameliorate all of those feelings of, uh, tension with your family.
1: Yes. Uh, in comfort food, it's, it's interesting when you start really thinking about not only what it means to you, because everyone's got their comfort foods, you know. And, and certainly there are some comfort foods that, that you think of a lot. You think of things like fried chicken as a comfort food or various, uh, you know, or a casserole or, or what have you. Um, so a lot of times it's something that your mom made or whoever raised you, something you grew up with, where when you eat it, it takes you back to that feeling of safety that you had as a child being provided for. Uh, but then also a lot of it is cultural, too. Uh, if, say you're of uh, Italian heritage, then your comfort food might be uh, not, not only your mother's food, but your mother's spaghetti, or then anybody's uh, particular spaghetti recipe. Or if you're of German heritage, then maybe it's that particular schnitzel that really does it for you, that really takes you back. And and, and, it, and it might be, I mean, God help you, if schnitzel is what you eat every day uh so it's so it's something that is also a treat it's something you don't normally have and then when you do have it it comes in with all this cultural and personal resonance
0: it's true if you are uh, reaching out for a blood sausage you're your yes. German heritage, this might be just the fix that you need to pick up your day. Um, psychologists call comfort food a social surrogate, as, as you've already mm-hmm. pointed out, in in different ways. And it's interesting because if you look at studies concerning food and comfort, you will find a bevy of them. And one of the ones that I thought was really interesting is a study that had to do with people feeling less lonely after just writing about food. Okay, they didn't consume anything, and it was specific to comfort food.
1: All right, this is a 2011 University of Buffalo study, mm-hmm. and, uh, and yeah, so they bring in a bunch of people, set them down, and says, "Hey, I want you to write a little bit about a fight that you had with with somebody that you have a relationship with." You know, I, I imagine that most of these are going to involve like previous relationships or current spouses, that kind of thing, uh, current girlfriends, boyfriends, etc. So they write about this painful, awkward, or traumatic episode mm-hmm. and then put your pencils down now six
0: minutes later six
1: minutes later mm-hmm. and now let's flip over the page and I want you to write uh, start writing about uh, about some some comfort foods about the fried chicken or the blood sausage or whatever it may be write about some food.
0: Yeah, that's right. Some people were asked to write about comfort food while Mm -hmm. other people were asked to write about a new food experience. Right. So obviously you see right there, the new food experience doesn't have all the sorts of emotional attachments to it because it's a new experience. It's Mm -hmm. not related back to mom or childhood. So, of course, what do you think the results were?
1: Uh, The the results are probably going to be that the comfort food is the one that really makes the difference in most of these.
0: Yep, that's right. Uh, What they did is they took all of the participants took a test after they they wrote about food. When they filled out this questionnaire about loneliness, it was found that the comfort food, just thinking about it and writing about it, helped those people to self-adjust their moods.
1: Now, there's an important caveat here, and that is that uh, generally the individuals who were aided by the food, they were in a more or less good relationship. That w- they just had some some either fighting in the past, right. or or just a little you know fighting in the present. So it's not a situation where you're going through like you just murdered your spouse the night before, and then for some reason you came in to do this study and you thought about mashed potatoes and it fixed everything. No, not not quite. It's not that <laughs> powerful. But certainly if you're like oh I really love my wife, but we we just uh, we keep fighting over what color the carpet should be. I think it should be hot pink. She thinks it should be neon green. We can't come to a decision. We keep fighting. Mashed potatoes. Oh. What was I What was I upset about?
0: Well, and I think it's just interesting because we've talked about this before, about how just thinking about things can yeah. really change your brain. And we talked about this before, even in uh, writers who are writing about their characters mm-hmm. and people who are reading uh, novels, that their mir- mirror neurons begin to activate as though they were throwing the ball or they were running to, to escape someone. So, um what I started to think about is that's really powerful because a lot of these comfort foods involve fat. And there's another study that actually looks at fatty foods and moods. And this was uh, in the Netherlands. And what they were doing is they were taking uh, 12 healthy individuals and they all underwent four 40-minute fMRI tests while listening to music or viewing pictures that induced sad emotions. Now, at the same time, all of these participants received an infusion of either saline or fatty acids directly into their stomachs. <laughs> this
1: is where the, the experiment really goes off the rails. Because the other one, it's like, oh, you're writing something and thinking about food. Or, or I could imagine signing up for this study and thinking, oh, well, they're just going to show let me like a Lars von Trier film and then feed me some <laughs> mashed potatoes. But no, they're going to pump something directly into my stomach after I watch it. That's...
0: In addition to the large Montreal, yeah, yeah, right? what, what
1: kind of uh, movie theater is that? You know? Yeah,
0: yeah, I wonder if they did show Melancholia to them because that would be a really great film to try to in- in- induce sadness. I have yeah. to say, um, but all all of the participants had um, completed a twelve-hour fast, so they came with empty stomachs and they had no idea what it was that was being put into their stomachs. <laughs> okay, so the results indicated that subjects who received a fatty infusion were less sad when viewing sad pictures or listening to sad music. And then the fMRI test confirmed fewer neural responses to sadness in several areas of the brain in this group.
1: Wow. That, again, I, I'm still overwhelmed just by the weirdness of the experiment. Though. But, yeah. but, but I guess it was important because they wanted to cut out the actual eating of the food and... I don't know maybe they just really wanted to pump stuff directly into the the gut.
0: Well, and what they are what also trying to do is to say, hey, there's it's not just the mind body link, right. it is the body mind link and we've talked about this before in our podcast about whether or not our guts are really our second brains.
1: Right. And then of course when we're they, they really wanted to look at the nutritional intake and when you eat food I mean, it's a no-brainer, but there's a lot going on. It's about it's about smelling the food that you're eating. It's about the texture. I mentioned mashed potatoes, and it's true a lot of a lot of the comfort foods you encounter, it's like a, a creamy kind of consistency to it. Um, I mean, some people may have beef jerky as a comfort food. That's great, but but a lot of comfort foods are kind of like a smooth, easy to eat kind of a thing. And again, just having a story about that food as well. Uh, you can circumvent that by just pumping stuff directly into the stomach it's also worth noting on that 2011 university of buffalo study they also had another experiment uh, where uh, they found that eating chicken soup in the lab made people think more about relationships if they considered chicken soup to be a comfort food which again comes down to my argument that chicken soup even when it's really good is, isn't really great because it's chicken soup <laughs> right. but it's all about the idea of it because like when i think of chicken soup i think of I'm I was I'm feeling bad. I'm feel, I'm either you know I'm, I'm under the weather and like my mom makes me chicken soup. It's like it's the you can taste the love, right? It's somebody making the time, taking the time to make this dish that is all about please get better and feel better because someone loves you. And I feel the same way like when my wife makes it for me when I whenever I'm ill.
0: You know what's funny about that is that my mom doesn't cook, never really has cooked. Mm-hmm. So, but I have the same feelings about chicken soup even though I don't consume it now. Did I'm she? A did she ever make it? No, I was going to say I can look at a a can of Campbell's Uh and feel a little warm cockles in the heart there.
1: Well, yeah. Well, you know, I think my mom, I could be wrong on this, and I'm sure she'll correct me uh, when she hears this, but I think it was like she would do like canned chicken soup as well because, I mean, she was busy. uh, She didn't have time to make a bunch of, No, who has time to make like chicken stock from scratch in in this day and age? But I'm pretty sure that was canned as well. But still, it was, this was a thing that you had when you were sick. And if you had it, it meant somebody loved you enough to at least open a can.
0: And that was the truth. Man. If not,
1: boil down the chicken carcass for hours and create fresh chicken stock.
0: Hey, man, she, she did many other things, I yeah. would say, to, to help me feel better.
1: And I should also mention that, all right, the 2011 University of Buffalo study, you, you mentioned the distinction between uh, people writing about new food experiences and people writing about food experiences that they had all this comfort and all of these uh, associations for. But in some cases, you do encounter people's comfort foods that are associated with new discoveries because ultimately, like, food is this very personal and also kind of selfish thing, you know. So, in some cases, it'll be something that, that we see as a personal discovery. Uh, one of the articles I was looking at, I think it was a Psychology Today, they mentioned um, the, 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 uh, the writer's husband went crazy for Shiraka. Like, Shiraka on anything mm-hmm. was a comfort food. Um, and certainly, you get some spicy and some sweet in there, and Shiraka is amazing. Uh, But his whole thing was that this was something he had discovered. This was something that was totally totally him and didn't necessarily have a connection with with his upbringing or his past.
0: No, he just discovered that it was making the reward part of his brain go ding, 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 really, because he was getting a little bit euphoric with the spice there. Um, And I also think that, too, with new experiences and food, you know, you'll pin that a lot of times to travel.
1: Yes. So, you know, yeah.
0: sometimes I'll think about things that I've eaten and I will elevate them to the you know, highest level because I think, oh, I had that in Italy or, or whatever, and it may not even actually be that great.
1: Yeah, but you still, again, it, it comes down to why I pump this stuff directly into the, the uh, test subject's stomach because, again, food comes to us with a story. Food comes to us with a smell, with a texture, and all of these things that go beyond mere uh, nutrition.
0: And what we're talking about here, too, is really gaming a sense of comfort. Right. Of course, there is the food industry, which is really interesting in this idea of tweaking moods through food. At the national meeting of the American Chemical Society, Karina Martinez-Mayorga presented the latest findings from her ongoing study of the effect of various food flavors on mood. And it turns out that molecules in chocolate, a variety of berries, and then foods containing omega-3 fatty acids positively affect mood. Um It was found, and this is really interesting, it was found that the chemical components of these food flavors are structurally similar to something called valporic acid. And this is the primary ingredient in several pharmaceutical mood stabilizers. Of course, the research was supported in part by a food flavor company, France-based, uh, Roberté.
1: Roberté. Roberté. Okay. Roberté
0: yeah. uh, flavors. And the scientists say that food industry companies are joining Pharmaceutical companies in the quest for natural mood boosters, so they're not intending this as a replacement for you know for for treating clinical depression, but they are saying like maybe this could give you a little extra uh, pep in your step.
1: Right. I mean, well, certainly there there are a lot of fine arguments out there that that a lot of problems. Uh, with health and even mental health, um, to a certain degree can be treated through a proper diet and an informed diet. But again, yeah, think of what comfort foods tend to be. They tend to be soft. They tend to be sweet, smooth, salty. And uh, like we mentioned, uh, sugar and starch, they spur serotonin. Neurotransmitter known to increase a sense of well-being, It's mm-hmm. like Prozac. Um, salty foods spur oxytocin, the cuddle chemical that we talk about a yeah. lot that we also get from hugs and orgasms. So, you know, that's that's, that That's explains something. the saltiness there. Um, fat is a good balm for the fear of starvation. So, again, we think back to our naked uh, caveman running through the Serengeti chase by saber-toothed tigers, a scenario that may or may not actually pan out. If mm-hmm. you check me on that too much. But but still, the idea that, that on a very primal level, we are creatures that are having to run fast to get away from something or run fast to catch something. We need the energy. We need the fat. So... That's why the the fat is such a balm for fear. We're not going to starve. We're not going to be eaten on a very primitive level. You know, that drives home.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the fat because it takes me back to the podcast that we did on gluttony and all of that research about how when we lose weight, our body actually (laughs) begins to game. The body to to try to get back at the old level Mm -hmm. because of this fear of losing fat. And in fact, people who lose, uh, I think it was something like 20% of their body weight have to exercise even harder than their counterpart who didn't lose weight, but they weigh the same amount um, simply because the body won't burn as many calories. Because, yeah. again, it wants to get back to that set weight that it knows, and it also begins to crave more fatty foods.
1: Yeah, and we, as we've discussed before, and as, a, and as countless food documentaries point out, we live in an age now where all the fat you want, just walk down to the store and buy it. All the salty you want, all the sweet you want, generally all these things are actually available in one bag at your local fast food restaurant. But, of course, we didn't evolve into that scenario. You know, that's not that's not the the natural availability of these various elements.
0: Yeah, I actually saw something the other day. It was it was about weight loss and a group of people who had, had lost weight and it said, we'll work for less food. And I thought, well if that's not a commentary on the abundance yeah. of food in the world right now as well as a commentary on some other stuff, I don't know what is. Um, but again we're we're talking about this concept of gaming comfort and you guys out there are probably familiar with this study because I think it got a lot of play. But this idea that comfort also comes externally so and actually affects our moods in ways that we might dis- make uh, favorable decisions about others. And what I'm talking about is um, the warm mug of liquid study. Ah. Do you know what I'm talking about where the participants were given a warm mug of coffee, I believe, okay. to hold just for a few moments and to think about someone that they um, may not have particularly had warm feelings about, but talk about them as they were holding the warm cup. Mm-hmm. And then uh, participants were given uh, an iced coffee to hold.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Okay, so now, now they were holding something that's cold. And so it turns out that those people who held the the mugs of hot Joe were much more likely to perceive others as having warmer personality traits
1: well this is it, basically this is the hot cocoa phenomenon here because with, with hot cocoa uh, well first of all you're getting that chocolate that's sweet so you're you're turning on uh, some various neurotransmitters there uh, some people like a, like their their hot chocolate a little salty so you got that going on Uh Giving you a little, uh, little oxytocin, mm-hmm. and then of course it is a warm mug of goodness that you're having, generally with friends or family or loved ones while you're interacting with them. So it tends to, uh, to color a- an even warmer uh, interpersonal relationship.
0: Well, and, and, you know, it could be anybody though in this, this study, which is really interesting. Yeah. They could be talking about a coworker, they could be talking about their neighbor, or they could be talking about a family member. And this is one of those examples that neuroscientist David Eagleman talks about. Um, when he questions whether or not we actually have free will, and what I mean is that if a warm mug of co- coffee subconsciously makes you feel better about the person you're talking to while you're holding the the coffee, mm-hmm. um, then what sort of decisions might follow after that interaction or during that interaction?
1: Huh. Well, this this reminds me. Actually, it reminds me of times where we've dragged our recorder, Matt, in here, our well, editor, producer, director, general, audio general. Well, um,
0: a man of our times.
1: Yes. And sometimes we drag him in at ridiculous hours to try and get a, an episode recorded. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you'll, you'll give him coffee. And I and I thought you were just being nice, but you were manipulating him by giving him this warm beverage so that he can't help but think warm thoughts then about us and not hate us for dragging him in at, like, 5 in the morning.
0: Thanks for taking that down, <laughs> man. <laughs> No, really, it was—it's all coming from my heart, my warm, warm heart. Yeah,
1: but yeah. still, this is a good—this is a good trick that we should all exploit in our lives. <laughs> You're going in for a tough meeting, or you want to just You're going uh, in for a
0: job interview. Yeah,
1: bring some hot coffee, some hot cocoa, something, some hot tea—anything that'll that'll get the the, the room warm—and do not. Let that job interview take place outside on a November day.
0: Okay, so if you doubt this idea that a warm beverage or even just the warmth itself doesn't affect how we feel, um, consider a study by Harry Harlow involving primates.
1: Oh, yes. This is the great one. where they th- It was with macaques, I believe. Yeah. and uh, And you've seen the photos because they're... Terrifying, depressing. Uh, <laughs> depressing. Where they have the baby macaques, and they're 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 given the choice of two, or they're tested out in two different environments. Mm-hmm. One, there's this metal framework mother that that uh, is there to uh, distribute milk through a nipple, mm-hmm. right? And it's just this metal framework. And then they there's
0: nothing, nothing ish about it. Yeah,
1: vaguely monkey shaped, I guess if you really want to get creative. But for the most part, it's like metal thing with a nipple that feeds baby monkey. Mm-hmm. But then uh, then the other part of the test is cover that with fur, and you have a sort of fake monkey with a nipple. It's, it's soft. It's vaguely monkey-ish, but it's covered in fur. And which one do you think the macaques prefer?
0: Now, this one that had the fur, the cloth, was heated with a light bulb as well.
1: Yes, yes. So it's not so, only soft and furry, but warm.
0: So the surrogate mm-hmm. that gets the most play is, of course, the one that that has the light bulb in it. Yeah. Uh, Because it turns out that the baby macaques, although they would run and they would get the milk from the other surrogate when they were really hungry, they they prefer to spend time with the warm surrogate and cling to it, which tells you that there's there's something just inherent to this this feeling of warmth and comfort in uh, our ability to survive.
1: Yeah, and it reminds me of a... Of a study you sent me as we were uh, looking into this uh, podcast as well about the whole cold hands, warm heart thing. Mm -hmm. Which I have to admit, I'd never heard that saying, but apparently it's a saying cold hands, warm heart. There's
0: a song too. Really? Yeah. By who? I can't remember, but it comes on our (laughs) system every once in a while.
1: Okay, well, but the idea is if, if, I guess if you shake hands with somebody who has a really cold hand, Mm -hmm. it's okay because it means their heart is so warm, they're so full of warmth. In their heart, they and love for their fellow man that is actually affecting blood flow to their out to their limbs apparently, which I'd never heard because because it sounds ridiculous to me because it, it sounds like people with cold fish hands. This is like propaganda they put out, you know, like like CEOs and whatnot, where they're like, "Oh, people think I'm I'm horrible just because my hand is a, a piece of impersonal ice that I shove at people." Uh, maybe we should get some 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 data out there that uh, that targets the opposite.
0: We don't normally um, shake, but I think we should right now.
1: What Your you hand s- is cold. Uh-huh. Ah. so
0: everything you just described, my friend, is me. And I will tell you that even before <laughs> I knew about the song "Cold Heart, Cold Heart, Warm Hands," I used to say to my husband, "Cold Heart, Warm Hands." Um, so but it, it
1: turns out you were wrong, and science <laughs> is there to prove it. Because, uh, uh, in this study, they actually looked into it. Two thousand and eight researchers, Lawrence Williams and John Bra, they actually debunked this, and then found mm-hmm. that uh, that physical warmth activates concepts of interpersonal warmth, and it's very much in in keeping with the whole uh, iron mother furry warm mother scenario i
0: know i know so it it boils down to actually poor circulation for me um (laughs) but uh but i thought it was interesting because i think that in in the article the question was whether or not people would perceive your handshake your your cold dead handshake as is in a negative light and then inform their feelings about you that way much in the way that the mug of warm coffee made people feel friendlier could it do the opposite
1: huh so here's another idea to gain the system next time you go into a job interview or whatnot if you know that you have the, the cold hands or even just to be on the safe side do a little uh, palm rubbing there get it all warmed up and then then impress them with your loving handshake
0: that's what i do before i hug my daughter so that she doesn't run in terror from me <laughs> <laughs> all right we should probably take a break yes. uh, when we get back we're going to talk about automating comfort
1: All right, we're back. So we were talking about uh, about the the experiment with macaques, about the the iron mother that's cold and loveless, and the the light bulb powered furry mother that all the little macaques go crazy for. Mm-hmm. And of course, we've discussed this a little bit in the past when we've talked about robots.
0: Yeah, uh, we've talked about robots. Hugging you. And the reason is, is because hugging is obviously very comforting. And in fact, one study showed that when people engage in a hug for 20 seconds or longer, that actually reduces their cortisol levels, their stress levels pretty significantly.
1: Uh, and this, this is why you you said you always hold your husband in for 20 seconds, like count to 20. And don't let him escape until you hit
0: 20. Yeah, so. which he kind of tries to wriggle from. But then he we, submits. You've got to lock the arms. That's he something. lovingly submits to my embrace. Um, but, yeah, this is a really quick life hack. So, of course, what do we do whenever we, we are trying to figure out something that we do human-wise? We look to the robots to see if we can do something similar. And uh, there's something called the Hug Shirt, which I believe we've talked about before. Yes. This is a, is a Bluetooth-enabled shirt made by the UK's Cute Circuit and it uses embedded sensors and actuators to simulate a hug. Yes. So you could get the same effect. Um, there is the hug machine, which was designed by Temple Grandin. Yes. And um, that is a deep pressure device designed to calm hypersensitive people.
1: Yes. And that's, a, by the way, the Temple Grandin movie. Great movie. I highly recommend that.
0: Yeah, that is really great. I can't remember, who's the actress who played that? Um Claire Danes, right? Claire
1: Danes, yeah, the who a lot of you know from Homeland. She's yeah, from yeah, Homeland. She, now. Fabulous she, actress.
0: Yeah, she did a phenomenal yeah. job in that. Um so there are these different ways that we have tried to create the hug. But what do you do if you're beyond the hug, if you're in a situation where you are actually taking the last breaths of life and you need comfort?
1: Well, few of possibilities come to mind. Self hug, which may not be possible and may, mm-hmm. might not actually work because generally the self hug is something you do just to convince other people that you're making out with somebody when you're 10, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then <laughs> I guess you could, if you had, like, say, you could, uh, if you had a pet python, you could unleash the python on you in mm-hmm. those final moments. Okay. Because you get a combination of things there uh, embrace, quick demise, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then you also ultimately feed a giant snake. But, uh, but you're probably... Recycling. But what you're getting at here, I'm sure, is that we should have a robot that, that enters into the scenario, that enters the room of our dying, mm-hmm. and actually tends to our final emotional needs.
0: Yep. This is the last moment bot, or the end-of-life care machine, which was made by artist and designer Dan Chen. Uh, he made this because he wanted to try to... Uh, present an extreme example of a world where machines fill in for humans. And now, <clears throat> keep in mind too that we've talked about caregiving robots. So that yeah, th- is so not even though this is crazy. art,
1: this is, his idea is is I'm going to create some art that's going to generate discussion. Mm-hmm. It's still very much in keeping with stuff that's going on today. we've talked about robots that are being designed to help uh, elderly people around to help them use the restroom, uh, not only the elderly but injured uh, individuals as well to h- care for them in a hospital environment. So it's art, but it's it like all great art. It has a lot of ties into our real current position and our near future reality.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, it is. Uh, I think that the robot and the art installation is incredibly depressing.
1: Yes, well, that's your argument. I I interpreted it differently. Um, and we should we should describe a yeah, little more about what it out. does. Okay. okay. Um, so you're dying. All right. You're in this hospital room by yourself. Uh, that's important to note here. You're in this room by yourself, and then uh, and your 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 signs are being monitored by this machine. And suddenly, it realizes that you your death is imminent. Mm-hmm. So what happens? It turns on the last moment robot, and it wheels itself over to you there in your your soon to be deathbed. And uh, and what does it do? Well, first of all, it actually embraces you a little bit. Mm-hmm. There are some hug mechanics that go on. It kind of looks like it's rolling dough out of your arm, but the idea is that it's supposed to feel like uh, like an embrace like somebody's roping your arm
0: but now we're talking about this plastic kind of arm thing that yeah, comes it, down yeah it
1: doesn't there's nothing very human looking about it it's all about the sensation and then the robot actually speaks to you mm-hmm. the robot says i am the last moment robot i am here to help you and guide you through your last moment on earth i am sorry that your family and friends can't be with you right now but don't be afraid i am here to comfort you you are not alone you are with me. Your family and friends love you very much. They will remember you after you are gone. Sucker. No, it doesn't
0: no, say sucker. It, it actually kind of sounded like Hal for yeah, a second there. Yeah.
1: I was going for a little bit of Hal, a little bit of uh, David. David, from Fromuth, yeah. You know. Yeah, I
0: was going to say. Okay, so what, what do you find comforting about that?
1: Okay, so... I actually, like, just reading that, it, like, I feel my heartstrings kind of, uh, not reading it out loud because that makes it sound like I'm, I really love the sound of my own voice, but just reading it on the page when I first read the article about this piece, it connected with me, you know, because it, it actually reminds me, I mentioned Boards of Canada earlier, mm-hmm. the uh, UK uh, electronic duo do a lot of very nostalgic, ethereal sounding electronic IDM soundscapes. They have a track called An Eagle in Your Mind off the album Music Has the Right, Has the right to Children and it's it's kind of a kind of a somber piece at first, and then it and then it picks up, and there's a voice sample in there where it's kind of a, a computery voice that says, "I love you and every time I hear that, even though I know it's just a sample, there's something about it where I'm like, "Oh somebody loves me you know it like it it still connects with me, and I got that same feeling from from reading uh, and and in the video hearing the last moment robot's final words to the dying. Even though it's just some sort of speech-to-text kind of uh, scenario going on there, Mm -hmm. it's still... I feel like it still resonates with you, you know?
0: Okay, I understand that um abstractly, but I still feel like it's such a personal thing and you want to feel connected, right? Because if you're drawing your last breaths here on Earth, wouldn't you want to feel as though you were somehow pinned to the center of it in some way through another person, through someone's eyes? Well... To see the light go out in someone's eyes is just an incredibly personal thing, so...
1: I, I mean, you make it sound like it's it's to be, like, it needs to, like, find a dying person today and go look into their eyes when they die. Oh, no, no, just no, right. no. They're I just know. breathe in their soul, and it's wonderful. Uh,
0: no, what I mean is for the person who is dying and for mm. the person or persons who are losing this person, it's, uh, it, to me, in my mind, it would be preferable to have the human connection. Okay,
1: well, I would imagine the human connection is ideal. Certainly, if I were given the choice between saying goodbye... Or being, or or having a loved one tell me goodbye on my Mm -hmm. deathbed, and a robot. I would probably go with the human. Uh, Though it should be said, at least the robot's keeping it together here. The robot's like a saint. The robot's like a like a priest giving you last rites. That's done this many times before, and can at least fake being sincere about it, while also not losing it. Because you know you don't want. You also don't want the robot. There's probably not a setting for the for the last. uh, a moment robot where it just loses it and it's like, oh, please don't die. And that, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe
0: there is because you know if that were if that were to actually come to fruition, they would obviously the uh the people who created the robot would want to try to simulate the experience so that you could draw as much comfort from. it And some people might draw comfort from the yeah because
1: the, the message of the robot is pretty straightforward. It's like, hey, you're dying. It's cool. Everyone does this. You had a good life. Everyone loved you, and now it's time to turn it off.
0: Yep, I'm just saying I would feel gypped. <laughs> I'd be like, really? You're the last thing that I see?
1: But but if the uh, alternative, though, think of it, if the alternative, though, is dying in a room by yourself mm-hmm. or being vaguely attended to by an overworked uh, caregiver who may or may not be able to muster some fake enthusiasm uh, yeah. or legitimate enthusiasm. <laughs> enthusiasm. Well, enthusiasm isn't the right word. Um, compassion for, uh, for your last moments. Then... I can see the, the robot as being the preferred uh, method.
0: Okay. True, true. Um, here's one situation that I will get behind, though. Okay. And this is this idea that you could seek a virtual psychologist. And we've actually mentioned this before, but NASA, in their program called the Virtual Space Station Psychologist, just came out of its four-year pilot program to try to... Um, have some of their participants really reach out to this virtual psychologist mm-hmm. and, and gain some uh, self-help care.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's essentially the idea we're talking about here is you're on a long-distance space journey or you're in space for a while. You may or may not, maybe you're alone, maybe you're dealing with a small group of people, but as we've discussed before, that's a very intimate environment. Mm-hmm. And also you're dealing with a lot of biological funk that's going to be going on as your body adjusts to life in a semi-weightless environment. In the best cases, being locked away with a group of people is going to get old. But then throw in uh, a lot of vomit, and it's just going to get worse. So maybe you have a laptop in a room. It's kind of like the uh, confessional room, you know, in In in, all the reality reality shows, where you go in and you uh, either you talk to this thing and you actually have some back-and-forth interaction, or perhaps it's more like a questionnaire, multiple choice, like, how are you doing today? A for great, B for okay, or C for I want to launch Carl out of the airlock. And, uh, <laughs> and then the, the, the machine will ask you, well, why do you want to launch Carl out of the airlock? And you're like, well, he's been. I feel like he's just been kind of cold recently. And I'm reaching out to, you know, it, it, a part of it is like let's get the astronaut actually processing some of this instead of it just brooding inside you. Yeah. And then also it could uh, conceivably launch some, some tips grounded in actual psychology at you, give you some text to read about what you're feeling or what you should be feeling.
0: Yeah, the idea is that these virtual psychologists provide a problem-solving treatment. And so I'm not discounting, you know, uh, flesh uh, psychologists because I think there are many, many talented ones. But some of the success that I think that happens in um, therapy is that it's the talking cure it's a lot of people sort of talking through the problems and in doing so finding areas that they need to work on or um, areas that they can find solutions for.
1: Yeah, because if you've ever been to, if you've been to a therapist and um, and I highly recommend it if you if you're even con- considering it, if you think, "Oh, maybe I should go to a therapist for this," then do seriously consider it because it can be very helpful. But there certainly there are times where you might find yourself thinking, "Hey, this isn't like on TV." This person's not telling me how to solve my problems. A lot of this is me talking through it mm-hmm. and someone nodding and writing something down and, and interjecting a little bit. It's easy for people to make fun of that and belittle it and say, like, ah, oh, I, I, it was just me doing all the work. But that's kind of what's happening. It, it facilitates you actually working through what you're feeling.
0: Well, and ideally, these, this program would have this sort of... Um great, sophisticated feedback that you might get from yes. from a, a human psychologist um, in the works. You know, hopefully this will be something that will come online later. But I did want to mention that 29 current and former astronauts have been consulted for the project. And the trial has shown pretty good results in treating depression. And this is according to James Cartrain. He's a clinical psychologist at Harvard Medical School. And uh, future tests with firefighters and EMTs could help launch a more widespread use of the self-help software and eventually bring it to the public.
1: Yeah, and uh, just a quick example from real life of of actual interpersonal tension causing problems for space flights. Uh, In 1985, a mission on Russia's Salyut 7 space station was scrapped after colleagues noticed the commander seemed uninterested in his work and spent hours looking out of the window on the ship. And then three years earlier, a mission on the same station was somewhat hampered by tension between two astronauts. So also maybe it was haunted. I don't know. That could be a possibility (laughs) as well.
0: Uh, But no, I mean, I guess that underscores the the reason why you need to have people feel as good as they can uh, up there on their missions because obviously a lot of things could go wrong.
1: All right, so there you go. A little uh, a little insight into comfort and what it is. It certainly is you're seeking out comfort this holiday season or the next or just after uh, a tough day at the office or a breakup or whatever. Because we didn't even mention ice cream after a breakup, right? I mean, that's the, another motif that you run. Yeah, for. I don't... Did you, you never did that? No. Yeah. I, do, well, I either, don't understand but that. They because do it It's cold. It is cold, yeah. But it's but it's also fatty and sweet.
0: Cold comfort.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I want to leave out with just a couple of quotes here about comfort and about our, our search for comfort in life. Uh, first of all, here's a little bit from C.S. Lewis. He said... If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin, and in the end, despair. And then uh, our good buddy Aristotle said We live in deeds, not years, in thoughts, not breaths, in feelings, not in figures on a dial. We should not count time by heart throbs. He Most Lives, Who Thinks Most, Feels the Noblest, Acts the Best.
0: Also, I wanted to thank Mike C. for writing in and asking us to do a program about uh, the science of comfort.
1: So take all that with you as you uh, eat some comforting foods and uh, do some comforting things. And we would love to hear from uh, you guys, if you want to write in, uh, about things that you get comfort from. And more importantly, uh, your analysis on on what is comforting and why is it comforting. What memories what personal history is wrapped up in that particular item thing or experience and then uh what what about the science of it is there is there something salty is there something uh, sweet is it releasing oxytocin into you uh, let us know about all of that we love to hear from people you can find us on facebook and you can find us on tumblr we are stuff to blow your mind on both of those and on facebook you can certainly give us a like we can always use uh, a little more support and if you want to find us on twitter we're on there as well and our handle is blow the mind
0: also, if you have any thoughts on the last moment bot, you can always drop us a line at, at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.